if you just have a very transactional business, like it's a deal, it's a deal, it's a deal, you never are really forced to engage with people's feelings that much. But when you are managing people who are then also managing people, when people's own sort of insecurities, histories, perception of like who got paid what when, you know, who's getting more budget, all these sorts of things. You don't, nobody really thinks about that when you're growing a business, but like your business is really only as good as the quality of the talent you bring in and their ability to collaborate. If you just bring in superstars, but they can't work together, then it doesn't matter. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Xian Ko, Managing Partner at Hustle Fund. Now, Hustle Fund is a VC fund that invests in pre-seed stage software startups, primarily in the US, Canada, and Southeast Asia. Often, they write the first check to the startup or involved in the first round of funding. Beyond the usual criteria that VCs look for, Hustle Fund tends to prioritize founders that have speed of execution above all else. In fact, they're keen to make decisions as fast as possible. On this show, we dive into her experiences starting in finance, moving into product management leadership in the early days of NerdWallet, to her role today, which is writing checks for similar early stage businesses like the ones she had an opportunity to grow. So let's get started and hear how it all began for her. I mean, I've never been one for tenure plans, so I cannot tell you that you know, I was going to end up here. I think a lot of what drove my decision-making when I moved from one opportunity to the next was really around what I thought I was going to learn and who I was going to get to work with. And so, to be honest, I don't think if you'd asked me in high school what I'd be doing, yeah. I would have said, I, I'm probably going to be a civil servant. Like I would be working in policy making, you know, because I was really interested in like the questions around like, how do you grow a country? Yeah. Right. What are the policies that help countries grow up? And perhaps it's because I'm from a small country. Right. And so I'm from Singapore. It's a small country. It's a relatively young country. And it's a country that's been through quite a lot of transition over the last 50 years since its independence in 1965. And so you can look around the world and you say, well, like, if you looked at all the countries that got independence, you know, in the post-World War II era, what made some of them thrive and what made some of them struggle? So those are the kinds of questions I was interested in when I went away to college. But I think this is sort of the, like, how systems work kind of question, right? Yeah, and, right. And policymaking is like systems being enacted on people, right? So it's not just machines. And business is also systems being enacted on people. It's just kind of a different system. And totally randomly, I got an internship in college at J.P. Morgan. I honestly did not know what investment banking was. My friend, Tim, who I wound up working with later at NerdWallet, he said, you should try this investment banking thing. And I was like, you what is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's like, he's like, you might be good at it. And I was like, I don't really know what it is. He's like, it's only 10 weeks, right? It's a summer. He's like, you can yeah. do anything for 10 weeks. And I was like, well, there's some logic to that. Like, yeah, I can do anything for 10 weeks, right? And so I didn't really know what I was showing up for, but it sort of opened up kind of a whole new world of like, oh, there's a financial system and there's all these players running around trying to funnel money from 
providers of capital to people who need it, who presumably yeah. have some productive purpose for it. And you kind of have to figure out whether it's going to work or not. And so I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And my thought coming out of college was, well, you know, good at taking tests, but I don't really know how to do a whole lot else. I should probably go somewhere where they can teach me how to be like an adult. <laughs> and JP Morgan said, hey, well, great summer. Why don't you come back and work for us full time? Yeah, you, you look like you've got a adult potential. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, okay, that sounds like a good idea. You know, I can, I can learn from people who've been in business a long time and right. I can start figuring out how companies are financed. That's part of business. And, you know, I did that for a couple of years. It was in the run up to the 08 financial crisis. Brilliant. What a time to be in finance. <laughs> As a young person in their first job, it was eye opening. It's like, I'm 22. Why am I making a model for the controller of Cisco? I don't know anything. It was just sort of like, okay, there's a different stage you've never been aware of, and you need to step up and figure it out. Obviously, there was a lot of supervision, right? Like layers and layers of people yelling at you. You weren't selling CDOs out there to everybody on the high street, going. <laughs> I was not. There's a, that's my friend. You know, their response, that was their response was financial crisis. No, we were, it's very straight. You know, we're coverage bankers out of San Francisco. IPOs, follow-ons, actually the range, right? Because JP Morgan's a full-service bank. So we did high yield, yeah. investment grade, we did converts, buy side, sell side, M&A. It was an amazing education, very much from a financial lens. And I thought, gosh, this is so cool, but I don't think this is a sustainable life. I looked at my bosses, one of whom is a vice chairman at JP Morgan now. And I was like, you know, I don't think... I want to be him when I grow up. He was very hurt by this. He was like, what do you mean? You don't want to be like me. And I said, you know, I think that I can't imagine myself in a role where I'm on the road two weeks every month and I don't see my family. And you know, I don't think, yeah. for, I don't foresee that future for me. And we joke about that, right? Like, you know, we're in contact. And he said, he said, yeah, you know, I've matured. You know, I realize there are paths for people outside the bank. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, and you know, he, I made lots of great friends that I learned a ton. But so that was sort of the like, hey, I got to figure something out that's different because I don't think this is my kind of long-term game plan. It's fascinating to hear you share some of these stories though, right? Like like we were introduced by Karen Tay, who's been on the show, who, you know, works for the Singapore government. You know, we both are huge fans of hers, just the way she thinks about these systems, human systems, and the way she designs policy, almost like people think about products. like. How can we test this policy, do user research, go talk to literary citizens and understand what their pain points are and then design uh, policies that allow the behaviors to happen that we want and the outcomes to happen that we want. Really fascinating the way she, she does that show. I'd really encourage people to listen to it. But it's interesting that it sounds like that's an intuitive skill for you too as well, right? Whether you're taking it to Maybe your curiosity was in the public domain, but your opportunity, your first one at least, came in the financial domain. And I imagine the experiences of just seeing so many different types of opportunities, work, projects, it sounded like you were on, both through your internship and then through your sort of first few years there. You know, I often think that those opportunities are such an education in themselves because you learn about people and um, nothing sharpens people's behavior than money sometimes you see a lot of good behavior sometimes you see a lot of 
not so good behavior when those things are sort of on the line. You know, what were the lessons you took forward from that then is because you started to then transition, you obviously went and spent time at Bridgewater and a few people on the show who've worked at Bridgewater, which was in itself fascinating culture. Some people loved it. Some people hated it. Some people it was for, some people it wasn't, right? Folks that were working with Ray Dalio and had great experiences and found it extremely difficult um, with some of the systems of their believability or total transparency or what some people feel like it wasn't that for them, right? So how did you keep bringing this forward into what you were going to do next as you started to think about, you know, you're in the financial domain, you're starting to think about building, well, I don't know, what are you starting to think about next? Yeah, so I thought, well, I don't think I want to be an investment banker for my career, but let me reflect on what things I enjoy about this job. Let's make lists. Oh, nice. Are you a list maker? Was that one of your habits? I am a list maker. Good. You know, one of the things I loved was I loved working with the younger companies. So JP Morgan on the West Coast, they had acquired H&Q, which is one of the boutique investment banks in the first tech boom. And those four horsemen, they had sort of been at the forefront of taking tech companies public. And that's like pretty different from, I think, you know, J.P. Morgan's traditional practice out in New York, which was working much larger, the IBMs of the world. So, you know, when I thought about all the different projects I'd gotten to work on over the course of, you know, my time there, I realized that my favorite ones were the young companies, the ones who were just going public. And so I thought, well, you know what? I want to do more of that, right? I don't want to continually find M&A targets uh, for sell side M&A, or I don't want to sell a revolver for like LIBOR plus how many bips, like, because that's part of being a coverage maker, right? You, you've got a bag, you've got a bunch of products and you're kind of trying to think about what you can offer your clients. But I thought working with the young companies was the most fun because, you know, they were still in this high growth phase. They were still open to lots of different things, but yeah. it felt more like partnership and less like selling them something. And so that's how I transitioned to doing growth stage venture capital. I went to institutional venture partners and, you know, I did that for a few years and that was amazing, right? Because that was companies that were smaller. They're not public yet, right? So we were looking at companies that had at least 10 million in revenue and up. We were investing out of a $600 million fund. So we were writing checks, 20 to $50 million. And you got to kind of see things that were at the cusp right? So they weren't totally blank slates. They had something working, got to 10 million revenue, yeah. but they weren't public companies. And so kind of watching those decisions and being part of that process, I thought was super educational. What did you learn the most from that? It is much easier to model growth in an Excel sheet than it is to make <laughs> growth happen. Because you know when you do the investment, you make a model, right? You're like, when you build a company, you make a model. Absolutely, right? Yeah, yeah, and you're like, okay, here's my base case, here's my bear case, here's my bull case. And then, you know, you're like, okay, how many salespeople? Like, how much is my sales ramp? Blah, blah, blah. So you do all this stuff when you make the investment, right? And then you go to the board meeting, right? And you're like, oh. I mean, to be honest, I often felt like a fraud in those board meetings. <laughs> because like, what, what did I know about ramping a sales team? I knew nothing. You know, I had never sold anything. I had never sold software. Like, why, why would I know anything, right? But so you basically see like the big gap between like theory and practice, right? You're like, oh, okay. There's like a lot 
going on here that I actually have no idea the details of it. And you try to absorb as much as you can, but you've never done it. Do you think that helps though? Sometimes I think the naivety of the situation means you're in like sponge mode. It's like you're alive in a way, like you're really alert to like pieces of information really matter. So you're listening for them to help, you know, improve your your own model of how the world is working. It's kind of interesting, I find sometimes. It definitely is. But I guess I often felt like I didn't have a very strong foundation on which to contribute. And so perhaps that's like my fault. I should have had a little bit more confidence about that. No, not at all. Not at all. I was like, okay, you know, there's like a lot going on in here. And I really only have part of the puzzle. Like I only really understand part of the puzzle, which is like the finance stuff I felt pretty comfortable with. Right. But all this other stuff that was happening, I was like, oh gosh, like I don't even know how to like weigh those things in my mind. If you're trying to put together a system and you have high resolution on one thing and like really fuzzy resolution, everything else, you're just like, I don't know, do these things work together? So, you know, I thought, well, I probably should go learn more about those things. (laughs) So I went off to business school in an attempt to kind of like round out my education on business, right? Like I had not, I had not majored in business. I'd been an engineering, a mechanical engineer and, and econ major. And so went off to business school and I think really for the first time studied lots of businesses. Right. And through case learning as well, I imagine, right? Yeah. And, you know, you just realize, gosh, there are so many different ways to run and build a business. There's so so many right answers. Yeah, you're in this like weird software world. You think everything is a software company. And then you yeah. go out and, you know, I always tell this story, but it's like the first case, they give you a practice case before school starts. And it was a regional ice cream distributor, right? So in the front, there's all this text, the story, the conflict, blah, blah, blah. And then at the back, there's always the financials, right? So I like to look, flip straight to the financials. And I was like, <laughs> reading it, I was like, I was like 2% net margin. I was like, why do these people even get out of bed? Like, is this a real, you know? <laughs> Like I, my brain was so narrow. I Great. Yeah. And people were just like looking at me like I was a crazy person. Like, hey, Shan, the world is way more than technology, you know? And I was like, I know, but why? Ice cream is important. <laughs> Ice cream is important and someone has to deliver it. You know, distribution, distribution matters. Yeah. So, so I thought that was just like, it was just a really good interlude to sort of yeah. take a lot of the experiences of the prior four years and try to like bucket and synthesize them in a way that made sense. And then, yeah, then I made a weird left turn and I went to Bridgewater, (laughs) which was a little bit odd, but you know, I think I'm glad I did it. At the time I had been thinking that I wanted to move back to Singapore. And so I thought that if I worked at a hedge fund for a few years, yeah, yeah, that was was a financial center, it would be like a good way to come home. Versus like venture, there wasn't much of a venture industry in Singapore at the time. So it didn't seem like there were going to be a whole lot of jobs. And I had always loved macroeconomics. And so going to work for a macro fund, it just sounded like I was going to learn a lot. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, Everyone was so smart that I met. And I was like, oh man, you guys are so smart. Like I want to work with you guys. So that was sort of the thesis. It's not like I said, like, I don't have a five-year plan, right? I was just like, yeah, you know, they seem really smart. It seems yeah, like I'm no, going to learn a lot. Yeah, I'm with you on that philosophy. That's how I've made most of my decisions. Yeah, I could do it for a few years and then I can go home, right? So that was sort of like the thought. And I think what I learned from that experience is that just because something is intellectually interesting to you doesn't mean it's a good job for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There were a lot of interesting puzzles to solve, but 
I had a really hard time connecting what I was doing to like my, I don't know, my practical reality, my day to day, like real people. And so that was like hard because I think I just need that tangibleness to things. I had a hard time. And also just, I didn't love Connecticut, but that's, that's like a side point. I always think what's fascinating. Like I remember one of the books I read once was The Alliance and the idea behind it that you would do like sort of tours of different experiences was something that was really profound to me as an idea, right? I grew up in Ireland, a small little country, and I knew pretty early that I wanted to travel. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to live in different places and have different experiences for a number of reasons, right? It helped me grow. Like I backpacked around South America on my own when I was in my early 20s, didn't know a word of Portuguese or Spanish, but it was one of the best things I ever did for myself because I learned how to be independent in on, on certain situations, which was just a great growth. I did that for six months. I used to only work for three years and then take six months off. This was my perfect cycle. It was this ex- experiences and the people around me were good for me, right? I'd, I'd spend a, a bit of time somewhere, you know, whatever it was, like in a startup, in a business, whatever. But it was great for me. I remember when I read The Alliance, I always thought about that idea that, you know, you go to these places because you're inspired either by the mission, by the people that you meet there, that the opportunity to solve cool puzzles, as you were sort of alluding to, right? And it's one of the things that's always fascinated me. And I think a lot of the people we end up having on the show is because they don't necessarily have this sort of elevator, you know, I'm going to wake up and go to this school and then go get this job and then go to this business school and then I'm going to get a job at Google and then I'm going to do this. And very rarely do I find, you know, that's the narrative. It, it might be painted, but I think more the people are f- more fun and interesting that we have on the show and just don't have that narrative, right? They're intellectually curious. They're looking for growth opportunities. They try things that are different that don't make sense to other people, but actually make quite a lot of sense to them because you're doing things that you enjoy, you know? And like to hear you share your story about how you started off and in just an internship program to learn finance and spent that for a while and recognized that you had other areas you wanted to round out and go and spend more time in business and explore uh, macro hedge funds, which is super interesting anyway. The maths is great. But next thing you're like suddenly like starting NerdWallet, right? Which is like this sort of getting into like product development and building out these businesses. So what led you to sort of make that sort of shift or what was the next experience that you were looking to get out of that? Because believe me, hanging out with Ray Dalio, if I go that way, I'm halfway to, San- to Singapore. If I stop in San Francisco on the way, I can change flights and then get a direct to Singapore. No, no. I mean, I think I really liked the learning and I didn't love the work. Yeah. And so I was like, you know, this is kind of not my thing. And so you know, went back to the list. Like, what do I love? What do I love? I love working with these smaller companies. I like that feeling of impact and action. Yeah. And then I like, it's like about who I get to work with. And so I, you know, started looking at startups in New York because, you know, I was in Connecticut, I was splitting time and I was like, okay, what's going on in New York? Because New York was sort of starting to bubble up as an ecosystem. And, you know, I did a couple consulting projects, you know, I talked to VCs, you know, you run around and you tell me like, every VC will tell you like, oh, this is like my best company, you know, because all their children 
But then you ask them, well, which companies do you wish you were in? Then you get real answers. Then you get different answers altogether. Yeah, funny. My friend has a great company. <laughs> yeah. So just try to like kind of generate a list and then try to learn and then did some projects to try to get a feel for the teams. And I just didn't really find anything that I fell in love with. And I was having coffee with my friend, Tim. He had just moved from New York to San Francisco. And I was like, hey, you lived in New York for a long time. What companies do you think are interesting that I should go talk to? And he said, oh, I don't pay attention to anyone's company but my own. You should come work with me. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's a founder. That's great. <laughs> and he's like, oh, let me tell you. Because like we were social friends. We weren't, you know, we never really yeah, talked yeah. about. And so Tim had gotten laid off from his hedge fund job in the financial crisis. And he had started NerdWallet as like a, a side project. It was something that he had just done yeah, for yeah, his yeah, sister course, yeah. out of interest. Yeah. And he and Jake, his co-founder, had run it, you know, sort of between the two of them, kind of on the side. Jake was working at JP Morgan, you know, like it was this sort of thing that they were doing. And then the end of 11, they had decided they were going to try to go big or go home, basically. Like try yeah, to not, not yeah, just the be moment. the two of them, but like, yeah, love us. Yeah, yeah. Build yeah. a team, try to do something. And so it was kind of in that moment where I was having coffee with Tim. And that's when he was like, you should come work with us. And I was like, wait, what? What do you guys do? And so he sort of explained the business. And I was like, huh, sounds interesting. And I was like, walk me through the model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you got a spreadsheet? <laughs> yeah. And so we kind of walked through the model and I'm like, huh. I was like, well, something's working. Like, I don't really know exactly what's working, but something's working. And so I said, okay, well, that's all well and good, but what would I do? You know, you said, come work with me, but I was like, well, what would I do? He's like, well, what do you want to do? There's so much to do. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Silly me, just a year out of business school. I said, would you let me be a product manager? <laughs> and Aww. he looks at me and he's like, you want to manage engineers? I was like, yeah, that's what I want. I mean, I had no idea what I was talking about. I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. And he's like, okay. I mean, he's like, do whatever you want. So I was like, okay, fine. Make me an offer. So, you know, he goes back to his spreadsheet. He like calculates. <laughs> we have $8 in the bank. You can have a quarter of it. <laughs> we can pay you this. And I was like, huh, okay. Well, that's not Bridgewater money. And I was like, I got to call my, my now wife. But, you know, at the time, <laughs> not. And I was like, hey, I just got this job offer. It's for a product management role. But the company's based in San Francisco. And we were living in New York. And I was like, what do you think? And she's like, well, you know, she's like, sounds like a great offer, right? She's like, who else is going to offer this random finance person a product management job? She's a product manager. She's a proper product manager, you know, like all the way. And so when I told Tim, I was like, well, Tim, you know, I live in New York and, and Catherine doesn't want to move. We just got here a year ago. And he's like, don't worry, we'll, we'll figure it out. So the first year I worked at NerdWallet, I was three weeks in New York, three weeks in San Francisco. So I would just go back and forth, back and forth. Wow. And at the end of the first year, my mom flies in for the engagement party in Sonoma. And she's like, where's your apartment? And I was like, oh, I don't have an apartment in San Francisco. She's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, we have an apartment in New York, but you know, I'm on a startup salary. Like, I can't afford two apartments in like the most expensive cities in America. She's like, where have you been sleeping? And I was like, oh, I just sleep on people's couches. <laughs> she was like, this is unacceptable. <laughs> 
she's like, Catherine's family is going to think that you cannot support her. I was like, Catherine is under no illusion that I'm going to support her. Like, she yeah, has yeah. a fine job of her own. She doesn't need me to support her. And so we're driving so to good. Sonoma for the so engagement good. party. And my mom is like on the phone calling like realtors and setting up <laughs> house vis- apartment visits for the next day. So, you know, Saturday's the engagement party. Uh, Sunday we go back to the city. We like that's so good. look at apartments all day long. And then I drive my mom to the airport and she's like calling me from the lounge at the airport. And she's like, have you put out a deposit yet? Have you put out a deposit yet? Like you need a rent apartment. And I was like, oh my God. Oh, that's so good. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so that was, you know, like, that was my couch surfing year. Again, another one of our sort of shared friends is Gibson Biddle, right? Who, you know, you obviously got to work there. Like, I'm, Gib was actually like the, I think he was like the third person we ever had on the third ever episode of this show, you know? And it's about both our shared love of his definition of product management, right? Like delighting customers and hard to copy margin enhancing ways. Like what a great definition. And he talked actually about NerdWallet at the time that he wanted to do product management a couple of days a week and be in an interesting company. And so, you know, it must have been pretty fun to work with him and uh, all the other great people that were there. Again, like learning this craft. Gib was chief product officer at Netflix. You don't get to work with many people as gifted as that, you know, what was it like growing that company then? Like, How were you growing with it as you were trying these new roles? You were like taking on more and more. Yeah. It was a roller coaster. Yeah. It was madness. So I know part of the show is about like, what is a behavior that made you successful previously that then you had to like unlearn? This is the whole show. It's the whole show. <laughs> so, and I get this question a lot because there's a lot of people coming out of finance who want to transition to startups. Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there's like a couple things. So one is when you work in finance and you work in professional services more broadly, right? Whether it's finance or consulting, it's a client service business. And so you have a strong bias towards perfection and service because that's kind of what you're getting paid for. Yeah, it's all about quality and very close relationships. You get to see the people you're working with every day. And so... When you first go to a startup and you try to impose that, that standard on things, you'll drive yourself crazy, basically. Because at a startup, everything is a hot mess. And it actually is okay. Basically, like the, I think the big takeaway from startups, and I tell this to everyone, it's like, literally, I bet you have 100 items on your to-do list right now. Only one or two are existential. So you just need to let 98 things burn. Until they become existential. You, you just have to focus on existential things. And it's actually quite hard because I think when you're a service provider, you're very rarely in an existential mode. You're just like, well, I have a pitch that I'm delivering. I have a transaction. Though they're very well-defined things that most people know how to do. It's so funny as you're saying that, right? Like it, it resonates so much at the moment, right? As we're trying to build nobody Studios. There's so many things that I look at and go, oh, it's not what it needs to be. Oh, God. Okay. And sometimes it's actually like, I find one of the most useful things about it working in the team there. It's almost like when you list off what you think your problems are, sometimes it really helps for someone to go, that's not a problem. That's actually the thing you need to fix. It's like two orders of magnitude down or two 
I, that I think is when there's so many things on fire, as you're describing, when you're looking out the window and all you can see is like a what. <laughs> We're really painting a great picture of, of great picture of startups here, actually. Or everything is just, it's true though. It's very freeing, right? It's, it's just like you can't obsess about it. And the first sort of beauty salesperson I hired came out of Goldman Sachs. And I needed him, it was basically he needed to do a ton of cold outreach. Yeah, imagine for Nerd Wallace. Yeah, right, getting these all on board. How yeah. many emails did you send this week? And he's like, five. And I was like, what do you mean five? A day? Like an hour? Like what is five? He's like, yeah, I wrote five emails. And I was like, no, no, no. We need to send like a hundred emails a day. <laughs> and I was like, and here are some lists. And here are other ways to find other lists. And he's like, he was agonizing over every email. And I was like, look, dude, nobody knows we exist. We literally, no one knows we exist, okay? <laughs> So it is more important that you reach a hundred people than it is that you like get one person perfect because it doesn't matter. Chances are that person will say no or ignore your email anyway. And so that is a big mental shift. It's massive. Yeah. You know, I have to like 80, 20, this thing. I, nobody cares that it is size 14 font trebuchet. Nobody cares. that It is JP Morgan blue. Like no one cares. It's so ingrained in you. I mean, like, this is, you, you laugh at this, but you know. No, I, I'm laughing because I live it. I'm living it right now myself. One of these constant debates that, you know, I worry it becomes my hobby horse is that like this balance between alignment and action. How do we spend enough little time to get us all aligned about what we think is important and then also spend a lot of our time taking action, like doing stuff where my senses spark off is when people are just taking action all over the place and it's totally uncoordinated and you know, I seem to have the same question about the same problem 15 times at four different people. And every time I have that conversation, all my mind is saying is, this is churn. This is churn. This could be solved. This is churn. I need to be, I could be working on that other fire over there. And now I have to try and bring these people back together. I feel it. It's part of this, this, as you're describing, like that's sometimes just the way it is, right? There's days that it's like that where that's one that, that I really struggle with personally is like finding those balances between what's enough time to invest in getting people aligned about what we're trying to do, but then get people taking action and doing stuff. Because if you try to get perfect alignment, not possible. If people are just ac- taking random action all the time, you're so spread out already. So that's the one that keeps me awake at night at the moment anyway. There's five more, as you know, but that's my favorite one this week. Yeah, it never goes away. So I think those are the those are the behaviors, right? Where they were really important in being good at other things, and then they are like less important. And I think it's also just a matter of degree. You have to kind of know when to dial up and dial down things. And so I had a great compliment paid to me by a compliance consultant we'd hired, who said, "You know." you guys have made it pretty far without having a professional compliance person. (laughs) That's high praise indeed. (laughs) But it seems like, you know, you have a reasonable nose for when you should ask for help. It's sort of this thing, right? Because like, I think there's some extremes, right? Where some people are like, oh, I need to have a perfect incorporation. I need to have my legal strategy and everything done. And you're like, wait, you haven't written a single line of code. You have no customers. Like, why would you spend all this time and effort doing that when you don't even know if you have a business, right? And then there's the other extreme, which is just like, ah, move fast, break things. Like, who cares about regulators? And like, that does not work, when you, especially when you work in a regulated industry. 
I think it is great to have a professional services background because it does teach you where the bar is, but some of the habits you need to like modulate for the stage and the context and things like that. Right. And so it's, I don't know. I think those are things that we had to learn. I would say the first few years, like managing people was incredibly hard. I had never managed anyone that who wasn't like exactly like me. Right. It was like a mini analyst or a mini investor. It's like, okay, like I know how to manage people. It's like, no, you only have to manage people who are exactly like you. And that is not management, right? Like how do you learn how to think about groups of people at various levels of competencies, confidence, and get them to work together in a rapidly changing disorganized environment? Like that's actually like a pretty hard thing. And, you know, I'm grateful to all my early employees who put up with my bumbling through that because, you know, I was just frankly not very good at it. I think the thing that's hard for a lot of people to imagine is that startups move so fast and human beings, we're not accustomed to that rate of change. Yeah. And it's extremely uncomfortable. We have routines because it's comforting. It allows your brain to turn off, right? Like when things are the same, you don't have to think as hard about what you're doing. You just kind of go in your pattern. But when things feel like they're changing all the time, basically people's like, I don't know, cortisone levels are up, right? Stress, emotion, everything is like amped up. And then you kind of have to figure out like, okay, what are ways that I can tamp those things down so that people can continue to be like productive and high performing and all those sorts of good things. But sometimes you just, you're just dealing with people being very emotional and you have to be like, okay, well, what's going on with them? This seems like a really disproportionate response to what we're actually talking about. (laughs) So there must be something else happening. And That's also another big thing, which is if you just have a very transactional business, like it's a deal, it's a deal, it's a deal. You never are really forced to engage with people's feelings that much. But when you are managing people who are then also managing people, when people's own sort of insecurities, histories, perception of like who got paid, what, when, you know, who's getting more budget, all these sorts of things. You don't, nobody really thinks about that when you're growing a business, but like your business is really only as good as the quality of the talent you bring in and their ability to collaborate. If you just bring in superstars, but they can't work together, then it doesn't matter. So let's roll this forward because this sort of, again, feeds into what you're doing today, right? So now you are looking with Hustle Fund where you're making ridiculous early bets in pre-seed stage early companies. I don't know if you feel like it's a culmination or it's a different sort of pivot from before, but you're you're looking at these teams, you're, like you're looking at these business ideas, you're looking at the spreadsheets again, but you're looking at the people, I'm sure. And, and I know you personally have a huge passion that you, you know, you're now back living in Singapore and obviously spending time in, in North America as well. The region as well, and seeing how it's growing and how it's building up its ecosystem. So, I'm just curious to hear like how your thinking and experiences is evolving from from now this different type of role in actually a different type of region again, which is home for you. What are some of your observations that you're seeing in yourself and the way that you're you're helping teams in a different way now? Great question. I mean, I think the region is rapidly evolving, right? So even in the two and a half years that I've been back, I think. We've seen at least, I don't know, 10, 15 funds announced that are focused on the region. We've seen an influx of capital from global funds starting to write their first or second checks in the region. And so that has, you know, 
spurred a lot more interest and energy, which I think is great because I do think that that's how we advance the economies of this region. We support great entrepreneurs who build businesses that employ more people. And so that gets me really excited because we work globally and we also have a chance. We started to write some checks in Latin America and Africa, right? It's interesting because you can kind of comp things. You can comp business models across regions and you can comp talent and all that sort of stuff. And so I would say that like relative to some of these other regions, I don't think capital is the issue in Southeast Asia. I actually think there's a lot of money running around. It looks different than what it looks like in the Valley and in the US more broadly, but I think there's still quite a lot of money. There's not that much money in our stage, but I think that will change. I'm seeing more and more angels becoming a lot more active, more angel groups, things like that. So I think that's going to come. The challenge for this region is we are just getting our first few big exits. So Bukalapak listed, we're waiting for Grab and go to Traloka to list, right? And we want that capital and that talent to recycle back to the ecosystem. And yeah. that's kind of like first gen. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Super interesting. And Silicon Valley is like the early semiconductor guys, right? So is it like Fairchild, right? Like <laughs> from Fairchild to Intel, that was like the 60s. There have been five generations of recycling or more, right, in, in the Valley. Whereas here, we're just entering our sort of first recycling phase. Mm-hmm. That's a great analogy, actually. I'm excited. Oh, well, uh, we have Shopee too. And there's a lot of great Shopee talent running around the region. So I think that's like all really exciting. We have a lot more first-time founders here. It just takes time, right? Like these first-time founders don't have the benefit of being in a place like the Valley where there is such an incredible density of experience, yeah, right? So it's like, you can be sense. like a yeah. brand new person in the Valley, but you stay for a couple months and you'll, you need to learn something. You'll get introduced to someone who's done it. Yeah. Right. So if somebody's like, oh, well, I need a marketer in the Valley. They'll be like, oh, okay. What kind, what channel, what scale, yeah. right? It's like, and yeah. there's so much specialization because it's so big, but here, yeah. It's a much smaller set of people. And so I think that's part of the maturation of this ecosystem. And I think the other thing, it's just like speed, speed and mental models. I think things move slower here. And partially it's like, if you haven't ever worked at a high growth company that's moving really fast, you don't know what fast looks like. You feel like you're moving fast because no one's run past you yet. But I mean, it's probably what's like, you know, when you go to China, and you're like, oh, these guys are moving really fast. These guys are insane, right? So I think we're still getting up the curve there in Southeast Asia in terms of like pace of execution. And I think part of the immaturity is also this stuff around like org design, yeah, like talent absolutely. management. And so much of that, I think, as well comes from, like you're saying, you're alluding to some of these things about the density of talent that there might be in you know, the West Coast of America, wherever it might be. A lot of this is that you, there's very easy opportunities for you to surround yourself by other people that are either going through it, have gone through it, that you can learn from. You know, you can go, when we used to be able to gather in in person, you know, like you could literally spend your whole week eating pizza at some SaaS company, you know, in between your couch surfing days. But you could hear someone talk about an interesting topic, right? Whether it's like how to do SaaS marketing on a Facebook platform to go and listen to the product manager from whatever the startup is of your choice. There's so much 
easy ways for you to connect with people and learn from them and interact with them as well. I think that that helps. I think also you, you only know what you get to see and experience as well. And what is role modeled in the companies that you've you get to work in. Like it's one of the reasons I I think we've both said this is like we like working with smart people who are doing interesting things because that experience you get from being in around different leaders, good leaders, bad leaders, right? All of this stuff keeps making you better. I personally believe is because you see more, you're learning through other people's experiences or you're observing what happened when somebody tried a certain way or as you're trying to lead at different groups of people, different cultures, different geographies. These are all the challenges we're seeing at the moment, right? Where we have decentralized startups like all over the country, all over the world, people who've never met each other and they're trying to launch a product in like 12 weeks, you know, and if you've got the designer is Italian and then the desi- the engineers are based in London and the founder is in LA and just the product manager is in Chicago, but on, you know, like they're all over people who've never met each other and they've different styles of working, different experiences of working. And how do you, be, you know, form as a group and be productive? It's hard. And I think it's just sort of fascinating about like, Another 2 billion people about to come online onto the internet. The Southeast Asia as a region is like one of the biggest regions where that's actually going to happen. I just think it's fascinating. Like that's what's going to be so interesting. I learned while our first offshore team was in Vietnam, actually. You're meant to go, shh. No one's meant to know how amazing everyone I know who has works with engineering teams from Vietnam is always like, shh, don't tell anyone. They're so good. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) That's the thing, right? Like we believe great talent can be anywhere in the world, right? And the internet enables them to work anywhere. And now with COVID, people are just much more open to the idea of distributed and remote work. Also, I mean, I just saw this thing. A woman is helping a bunch of Afghan women find work on the internet. They speak English. A lot of them are highly educated, but they're in some like random place due to, you know, the situation in Afghanistan. And I was like, that's great. And then I, you know, the next question was like, wait, but how do you pay them? Like, can they even get money out? Like, is there a bank? Like, I have, you know, so many other questions, but, but like, yeah, like imagine a world where you could live anywhere and work for anyone or work with anyone. I think that's actually a pretty cool idea. Isn't that what the internet's meant to help us do? That, that's what I'm signing up for. Yeah, exactly. So in closing then, to ask you that then, like, what are you most excited about? What are you looking forward to now is you're seeing like you're right on the edge of all these new companies that are being built, right? You're getting to see these early stage entrepreneurs, first time founders in the region, these pre-seed stage companies. You know, for me, I, I just keep getting blown away by the pace of innovation, the way people are thinking of recombining things, solving business models in different ways. It's just to me, it's like a privilege just to see, see all this stuff. I sort of would love to do it all, but you can't do it all. What's sort of lighting you up at the moment? What makes me excited, you know, it's a little bit what we've talked about, right? Which is that, you know, the idea that opportunity can be more widely available. I think that's like a really powerful idea. And, you know, you see versions of it, I guess, with, with COVID, like a lot of people moved home or they moved somewhere else and they were able to find some sort of balance in their lives where they could like work and spend time with their kids. And maybe in the course of it, they'll end up revitalizing some of these regions that have been neglected, right? And I think that's like a 
cool idea, right? So it's like, can you transpose the idea of a place from a physical place into a virtual place? And I literally have entrepreneurs I've written checks to that I've never met in person, but I still feel really close to them, right? I chat with them. I know what's going on in their business. And then when I first meet them, it doesn't even feel that momentum. It's just like a continuation of this conversation that we've been having. And that's just like a really cool thing to me, right? That you are less bound by where you were born and with an internet connection and a phone, which honestly, there are like 6 billion phones in the world, right? I mean, that's the crazy thing, right? You could go somewhere and, you know, they might not have a computer, like a laptop or whatever, but they have a phone, they have access to the internet, they can learn. There's like that Indian javelin thrower who learned all of his javelin from YouTube in the Olympics, right? You're just like, so that's actually interesting, right? It's like this explosion of like information and opportunity across the globe for like, I don't know, reduce suffering, reduce poverty. I think those are like all cool things that we should be excited about. Yeah, no, it's great. No, I love it. Well, it's been super fun to have a chat with you and hear your story and your twists and turns along the way. I'm sure there's plenty more ahead of you. Thanks for sharing them with us on the show. Thanks for having me, Barry. It's just super fun.